they cut a sequence where Nick Cage reprises some of his most iconic roles like Face Off, Con Air, Leaving Las Vegas, and Gone in 60 Seconds in a long black and white fight sequence between him and his younger self in a surrealist German expressionist set evoking the captain of Dr. Caligari. But they cut it from the film because they thought it didn't fit the third act. But according to Nicolas Cage, this deleted scene will be released on home media. So I, I really want to see that. Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're gonna to talk about the unbearable weight of massive talent and Paris District 13, starting with the Nick Cage movie. And, and I say that because it is such a Nick Cage movie where Nick Cage plays himself and yet doesn't. He plays a guy who is not the famous Nick Cage that we know. Now, when I went into this movie, I did not realize what that was supposed to be all about. But I have to say, it, it kind of made more sense unfolding than I thought it would, given the premise. But it's, you know, and I hate to use the word meta because everybody is overly discussing things that are meta. But, you know, it really is very meta. Mike, where do you start getting your hands around a movie this bizarre? I also start with the word meta, and I'll try not to use it again, and I will not use the word zeitgeist. In I was just going to say. No, I was going to say, no, I, I, you know, we've got to put a moratorium on some of those words already. But let me begin, actually, by ironically kind of circling back to a somewhat earlier film that I think is a, a better film on balance, being John Malkovich. Because that's also a case where you take a really well-known and really quirky actor who always has this sort of scratch in your head, like, what's going on in his head? You know, what, what's this guy all about? And you have him essentially playing himself or versions of him, himself. And when I say versions of himself, that's one of the, the M word for, for meta attributes of this is that uh, this is a very kind of self-reflexive filmmaking where the movie knows it's a movie. And it knows that you're watching it and it knows that you know all these things. And, you know, and we could go on endlessly spinning words here to that effect. Right. So this movie, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. And I don't even want to say that title again, because it would take up the rest of our episode just to say the title. The Nick Cage movie. Let's put it that way. Nicholas Cage. This is somebody we've talked about so many times in, in our program, various films in recent years. But he's he's out there. Right. And, and so here's here's a movie in which he can really be out there because not only is he essentially playing himself, you know, the movie star, but he also through some split screen kind of pyromania, by that I mean, you know, these, these special effects where not only can Nick Cage basically play himself as the middle-aged movie star, but in a kind of split screen sensibility way, he plays Nicky, like a younger version of himself. And so like if he's in the car by himself, just just looking like Nicolas Cage at the wheel and you think, uh oh, what's driving this guy? You know, there in the passenger seat will be Nicky, his younger self. And they have these dialogues back and forth. Now, why do I think being John Malkovich is the better of the two films? Because I, at some sort of and I'll be pompous and say metaphysical at some sort of other level. OK, there's a lot going on there. This movie is interesting because it's just so strange. It really is amusing and all of those things. But to me, ultimately, 
it seems like what I call a one joke movie. It seems to me that the basic idea is there and, and they embroider on it and elaborate and this and that, but I don't think it really pushes very deep into much of anything. I think it's kind of skimming the surface of a story like this. Marie, how do you feel about that? Because again, on, on the one hand, the film can't be quite denied because it's Nick Cage and you always want to see what this guy will do next. And it is clever and all that, but then ultimately just seemed kind of kind of hollow to me. I didn't feel, but we'll talk more about the dynamics of the Nicolas Cage character and, and you know, a, a wife and child and other relationships and so on. But I never really felt that in the sense of caring about it. I was just sort of like marking time, like, okay, this happens next. And there's there's some criminal intrigue in the film as well. But I was always just sort of like checking the boxes or, or just mentally making notes. Okay, this will happen, that'll happen. But I never felt like fully invested in the sense of deeply caring about any of it. You know, I'm glad you gave me the touchstone of being John Malkovich to sort of, you know, riff on because I think putting that next to this film what succeeds in the Malkovich film is that it it has a kind of a quasi-serious way of looking at a metaphysical kind of phenomenon, where in this it feels like it was written by people who write Saturday morning cartoons for kids or even ABC after school specials or just it's just pitched so low in terms of the plot, you know, where, you know, suddenly you're at this magnificent Greek island with all of these fabulous cars and things that you could drive and it's yes it is the world of movie stars which is one of the things that it's sort of exploring but also not it just feels sort of overly goofy and and of course it's goofy it's a goofy premise but I don't know I, I kind of want to segue over to a alternate thought here Mike where putting this in perspective of other Nick Cage movies because you know, he's sort of famous for making a lot of movies that aren't that good. And this is his 100th movie. And one of the fun things about the movie is, is it does reference so many of his films in so many ways. There's a Nick Cage museum, for example, that he discovers. And, you know, the, the one object in it that made me laugh were the Huggies, you know, from that scene from, um, you know, Raising Arizona. So I don't know, it's sort of a fabulous mess. It's very much a mess and, and it can be a very enjoyable mess at times. And when I, you know, as I watched, like Maria, I was making note of other Nick Cage films that are referenced in it and, and I enjoyed that. But by the same token, it, it has a storyline that is just, it goes beyond the goofy you expect. And it's just, it's just silly at a certain point. But when Marie mentions how many movies Nick Cage has made, what does play to advantage is his character. How do you even describe it? Is it Nick Cage? Is it a character? But anyway, Nick, Nick Cage in this movie, he's a middle-aged actor who's a big star, but jaded. He's just tired of the walkthrough roles and, and just, you know, uh, just Hollywood being Hollywood. He's had enough of it. And he's had, he's got a troubled family life and all that. He's really just kind of burnt out. So he accepts an invitation from a billionaire playboy on Mallorca to show up for this billionaire's birthday party. It's like, hey, you know, we'll pay you a million dollars to appear. And at that point, I can sort of see it within the storyline. Like, well, why not? You know, I'm like, I'm not going to make any more movies. You know, he tells his agent, you know, I, I'm just going to retire and this and that. So sure, an easy million, I'll, I'll fly over to Europe and appear at this guy's, uh, you know, retreat and whatever. But this is where the movie really lost me because without spoiling, can you really spoil anything in this film? But without spoiling much of anything, there's going to be some criminal intrigue there in terms of, you know, nefarious gangster activity, whatever, kidnappings, all sorts of things. But, you know, at that point, it's just so arbitrary. It's so silly. And the movie does go off on those tangents where you're going to spend time, you know, in terms of 
you know, bad guys shooting at out, car chases, kidnappings, you know, imperiled family members. You almost expect somehow at that point that Liam Neeson should show up and, you know, I'm going to rescue my family kind of storyline. Isn't it sort of like that at times, like Bruce Willis or Liam Neeson? I'm going to save my family. And that's where, you know, it's no longer as funny. And it just seems like sort of desperately spinning wheels. And Ree, you made the really good point that, that this is a film that's written and packaged by people who, who like, whether it's like, you know, standard issue TV programming or, or just, you know, sketch comedy, whatever, they're just sort of desperately throwing things our way after a while. And it gets locked into a really, really kind of stereotypical criminal intrigue type storyline, which I don't care about whatsoever. I want more of the, using the M word, you know, whether for metaphysical or meta, I want more of something like that. And Marie, don't you think the movie just essentially loses that as it goes along? You know what I mean? It sort of slips into a familiar groove of, you know, action movies, which are going to have a shootout and the rescue and all that. You absolutely nailed it because that is, I think, where the movie falls apart. Yes, you know, it's the imperiled family. And yes, you are waiting for Liam Neeson to come in and, and save the day. But there's no tension in it because you've seen it before. And you're not really that concerned about how it's going to go down because, of course, they're going to be rescued. And, you know, it's going to involve a chase and another, you know, fast car and, you know, crazy situations where people are, you know, jumping onto moving vehicles and that that whole thing. We've, we've seen it all before. It's not done better in this one where you think, well, you know, at least they tried something that was really visually exciting that's never been tried before. You don't get that at all. You get kind of a, a hackneyed story that is, it's almost insulting. And yet at the same time, you think, yeah, but it's also supposed to be making fun of itself. So you sort of understand, you know, why it's that way. I think it just probably looked better on paper than in the script. Now, I want to mention that Nick Cage thought the best written character in the movie was Javi, and so much so that he even asked to trade parts because he thought playing his own biggest fan was more meta than playing himself. And it wasn't until they cast Pedro Pascal that he eventually relented. I do think it would have been more interesting if he had played his own biggest fan. In fact, it would have been better if they Malkoviched it and had a whole bunch of people be Nick Cage, including you know, so Tiffany so Haddish, who yes. was wasted in this movie. I totally wasted. But it's so interesting you mentioned Javi because that is the billionaire playboy. He's the one who extended the invitation to come and, and stay for a birthday party. He's a real movie buff. He knows Nick Cage's career. He's got like a museum full of memorabilia, all that. Some of that's very funny, as Marie mentioned. If you know Nick Cage's career, to see the stuff that's on the shelf and on the wall and so on, it's amusing. Also, the, the fact that, you know, the two of them have these actually occasionally very funny discussions about movies. You know, what's your favorite film? This and that. And they managed to say, well, you know, they managed to combine such an unlikely assortment of movies. The 1919 German expressionist drama, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. They'll mention how much they love Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And I thought that's a real movie geek conversation, right? But in the same conversation, they'll mention Paddington 2, which is also actually a very, which is a very good film, but to put it mildly, a very different film. So it's almost like, well, which do you think is a better film, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari or Paddington 2? And, and, and nobody's ever asked me that as a direct question. I have to think about it quite a while because there's such different, different films. So I enjoyed some of that movie chatter because that's, you know, we're movie buffs too, right? So how can you not enjoy what I call scattered? references. Occasionally in the film, there's a moment, there's something that is funny. Uh, I thought actually one of the funniest things in the film, and again, it's just, it's just a toss away thing, like everything's sort of toss away here, but where the Nicolas Cage character, whatever we should call him, where he's got a drink in hand and, and he walks into a swimming pool. And for me, it was like a really great example of how unflappably cool Nicolas Cage is. 
you know, if he's hanging out at this, this resort, this billionaire's resort, and he decides to go into the pool, well, you no need to put the drink down, just carry it into the pool with you. And he just keeps going. And, and the fact that, you know, Nick Cage realizes the effect he has there, but he's able to do something like that with such a sort of casual, nonchalant attitude that, that again, in a film I really didn't like, there were moments like that, that, that I, I really I laughed at. And so if I can laugh a few times in a movie, you know, hey, there are worse things in the world. I do think if you're a Nicolas Cage fan, you'll love the movie, even with all of its flaws, because, you know, it does have a lot of references to his movies and sort of in-joke and, you know, his character folding in on himself by, you know, playing two versions of himself at the same time. All of that is, it's very engaging in a way, if you're, if you're a fan of Nick Cage. I wonder how much having to stop filming for COVID kind of took the, the wind out of the sails of what they had planned because the original script had a lot more cameos in it. We're supposed to have Quentin Tarantino and Naomi Watts and Charlie Sheen and Jim Carrey. But because of COVID, they had to dial them back and all they really got was a surprise cameo from Demi Moore at the end. And I think those other people having cameos in this would have made it more of a in-joke kind of, oh my God, it's Quentin Tarantino or oh my God, it's Jim Carrey. And also those characters would have given it different beats that were very unlike Nick Cage. I mean, Quentin Tarantino is so extreme in one way and so is Jim Carrey. And Nick Cage is just kind of this cool cat in the middle of it all. I am so glad you said that, because I've been thinking about this, that the movie has such a, a goofy, why not kind of attitude towards life, that it would have been so much funnier if it was just loaded with cameos. And, you know, that's the sort of thing where you wouldn't even have a, a logical question, like, well, well, you know, why is Quentin Tarantino poolside or something? It's just like, why not? And, and you just kind of, you sit there waiting for the next cameo. Imagine how wonderful it would be if in that pool scene that we referenced, you had, you know, Quentin Tarantino and Jim Carrey and just add to the list, just sitting around poolside. And whether they said much of interest or not, just having that, that the presence of them, the famous faces. And the Nicolas Cage movie star would know all these people, right? And so there would be a kind of internal logic if there's any logic here, and just simply having them pop up like that. And then the question becomes, you know, which of them should appear as themselves and which of them should appear as quote unquote characters? I mean, I think they could have a lot of fun with that, don't you? I mean, that would have really, to me, made it a, a much more involving film. And I think, Marie, you're probably right. Because of the production problems, they weren't able to pull together the, the cast they really would have wanted. Which I think would have made it richer in the way that you just mentioned, because I can only imagine Quentin Tarantino playing himself, you know, saying something cynical about Nick Cage's career, like poolside with a drink in his hand. But Jim Carrey could have probably, he's such a great impressionist, he could have done a Nick Cage impression and been one of the Nick Cages. You know, I, it just opens so many more possibilities when you add actors like that to it. But I want to mention, by the way, because of the Dr. Caligari, I'm, I'm sure you had an opinion about this, Mike, because I know I did. You know, they totally diss that movie, which is one of like the great movies of all time. And there's a someone tells Nick Cage, I think it's his wife. You know, I can't believe he tried to share the cabinet of Dr. Caligari with our daughter. And he, nobody likes that movie. And I'm thinking, yes, they do. That is a classic magnificent movie but anyway they cut a sequence where nick cage reprises some of his most iconic roles like face off con air leaving las vegas and gone in 60 seconds in a long black and white fight sequence between him and his younger self in a surrealist german expressionist set evoking the cabinet of dr caligari but they cut it from the film because they thought it didn't fit the third act but according to nicholas cage 
this deleted scene will be released on home media. So I, I really want to see that. Well, I do too. I use the cabinet of Dr. Caligari in some of my film courses, and, and it's such an important film. But Marie, you know, this is one of the arguing points within this film. You, you know, what do you make of that? Caligari, you know, is it a great film? Is it this or that? And some of the people, you know, hate it. Like, I can't believe you would show that movie to, you know, that kind of uh, argument going. That's really funny, uh, actually. And then, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Paddington too, and just like the, the potpourri of pop cultural references and of cinema history references like that. I would have wanted more. The deleted scene that Marie mentioned, I, you know, I think would be really, really fun to watch and we will be able to watch it eventually. I would have liked actually within this film if they had actual excerpts from some of the films they mentioned. Like if you're gonna argue about the film, and this is a billionaire after all, I'm sure he's got his own private screening room and they can, they can sit and watch whatever they want. You know, why not have the two of them side by side watching the cabinet of Dr. Caligari? And then like, well, okay, let's make it a double feature. How about Paddington too? You know, and, and then have that as the second one. Remember, imagine the possibilities here if they really delved into movie culture. Here you get like kind of what I call scattered references sort of pot shot approach. But Marie, aren't you sort of getting at the fact that, well, let's, if we're gonna talk movies, let's really talk movies, let's show movies. It's a movie about movies. Let's really go all out in that respect. Don't you think that would have made a stronger film? Absolutely, I think it would have made a stronger film. Uh, now, the other thing that I think the exotic locale makes it seem like you're about to watch some sort of James Bond kind of thing. And they were supposed to have it take place in New York in the first act, and then in Mexico for the second and third act, but because of the pandemic, both locations were changed to Hungary. And, you know, it is beautiful scenery, but for some reason, it, it just gives it that sort of unrealistic, you know, it's a movie, it seems kind of hokey feel to it. And I'm with you 100%, Mike. I think actual footage from his movies would have been so funny. Something like Steve Martin's Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, where the whole story is kind of made up of a whole lot of clips from movies skillfully interwoven so it feels like it's all of a piece yeah absolutely more of that and less of that sort of action adventure uh, nonsensical storyline that we were talking about because that's such an overly familiar thing and they don't do much with it they're kind of going through the motions so if you're going to have a movie movie as we're saying show some movies and so i want to see both you know an excerpt from dr caligari and from Paddington too, and from Nick Cage's movies. He's got, you know, what, a hundred of them to pick from. Why not show actual scenes from some of those films? I mean, that would be hilarious because, you know, you'd have Nick Cage watching himself. We're watching Nick Cage on and on. It's a Hall of Mirrors effect. And I think that could actually be quite engaging. It could be amusing. It would have been more meta. You notice how good I've been? I haven't used that word for at least five or 10 minutes. I know, but I, I, it's got to be killing you. <laughs> yeah, I, I had to hold it back. I wanted to use the word and stop myself. <laughs> Actually, if you're into meta, you know, then you'll definitely love uh, the new Doctor Strange movie. But I do think this movie is a must-see for Nicolas Cage fans. It does have its moments. But overall, I think it's weak in the story, and which is amazing because you would think there'd be so much you could do just riffing off of Nick Cage movies. Yeah, it's, it's basically coasting. Once it gets its premise going, that's why I called it a one-joke movie. I mean, there are actually more than one. There are a few jokes, at least, that work. But there's just not a whole lot going on there when you come down to it. And that brings us to a movie called Paris 13th District, which I was very excited to watch because it's directed by Jacques Audouard, who I think is a brilliant director. And this movie is the first one he's done in black and white. And I'll say that my first reaction to watching it, it starts off naked and comes back to sex like constantly throughout the movie. So it, it kind of put me, you know, it was jarring at first. And, you know, for the first 
I would say almost 20 minutes, I thought, what is this? You know, this doesn't feel like Jacques Edouard at all. I mean, he usually does such great character studies and it just seemed like very outside of, of what I come to expect from him. And by the end of the movie, I absolutely loved this movie. So I had a complete turnaround in what I thought about the movie while I was watching it. What was your initial reaction, Mike? Well, this is an interesting director. And of his earlier films, the one I do like a lot was from uh, 2009, A a Prophet, about an Arab man in in a French prison. It really, on a sociological level, hits so many important notes there in terms of you know, relations in France or lack of relations sometimes between people of different ethnicities, religions, etc. But anyway, it's very skillfully made. And he's made other films that I thought were quite worthwhile. So like Maria, I was looking forward to this. When the film begins, it has, I'll be polite and and say intimate relations. (laughs) Marie and I have both taught courses on French cinema. And as I was watching some of those, I'll call them romantic scenes, as I was watching some of those romantic scenes and thinking about this as a film that I knew would likely be a character study, just uh, several central characters, you know, sort of puts you in the menage a trois category in terms of character dynamics. And I found myself smiling just at the thought, well, it's very much a French movie. And so at that level, I I was sort of pulled in. uh, And and, um, I probably didn't like the film as much as as Marie did, but I I was always engaged by it. It it really, I thought, was quite worthwhile as a character study because you have, you know, a a character who is Chinese. You've got a black character. You've got a white character. Why, Why do I go into colors that way? Well, because, you know, you have several interlocked characters, their romantic lives intersecting, if you will. And the fact that they are, it reminded me of some of his earlier films in that sense of he has a keen awareness of the demographics of, of French culture that way in terms of, you know, race, ethnicity, all those things. And the characters don't stand and make, uh, you know, soapbox speeches about these important subjects, but just through their sheer physical presence, their being, right, they represent or they come from different backgrounds. That held my interest throughout the film. What also held my interest is one of the things Marie referenced. I love black and white films, as you know, and this is a film I thought was really well shot. And since Marie and I have taught French cinema courses, how could I not think about earlier, you know, Jules and Jim type films, you know, Truffaut's film, which, you know, again, you know, older black and white films. And this is, I think, a director who's keenly aware of that cinematic heritage. It's his film history more than mine. And I I think he's actually playing off of that. You think of some of those Godard films from the early 60s, Jules and Jim, The Soft Skin and so on. I think this is a film that is of that French new wave ilk. It reminds me, Marie, let me go to you on this because you, you, you're such a, a lover of French cinema. Weren't you reminded of earlier French films, particularly the French new wave films and, and Truffaut in particular? Yes, and I think that's a really good thing to point out, especially since it's in black and white. It gives you that sense of you know an older film that's meant to be more intellectual. So it sort of sets you up for that expectation. I want to mention that it's based on um, some graphic novels by Adrian Tomenet, specifically a collection called Optic Nerve. So after I watched this the first time, I thought, well, I've got to go read those and see how close it was to what we saw on the screen. And the short version is not very close at all. I mean, the basic outlines, yes. But for example, there is no character named Camille in the uh, graphic novel. And he's pretty central to the story in the movie. 
And the Amber Sweet story. Now, there is a, an entire story called Amber Sweet. And in it, again, gets the basic outline that you have in the movie, which is that there's a college student who resembles very strongly a very popular porn star who, you know, you can call up and pay money to, you know, have a discussion and have her do and say things that you would like to hear her do and say. And it creates a, a situation in her life that is devastating. Now, in the graphic novel, she just happens to run into this person, Amber Sweet, by accident at a cafe and has a little conversation with her. In the movie, I thought this was really what carried the movie because she does get in contact with this person who, you know, has this online life that is actually affecting her life. And the two of them start talking. And those scenes I thought were just amazing. And that's where I felt like, okay, there's Jacques Odvarg. This is where we're going to get you know, what I'm used to seeing in his movies. And one of the movies I'd like to mention that he did was one called Read My Lips with Vincent Cassell in it. Again, you know, kind of underworldish characters, but really intriguing and situations you wouldn't expect that are, you know, you're always thinking, I I've never seen this movie before. But the, in particular, that, that interaction between the two women in the Amber Sweet section, Mike, what, what did you think of that? Well, you know, on a, on a more general level, these romantic entanglements of characters from a different various backgrounds, uh, the particular question you're asking right now, I didn't find that the most convincing of the narrative threads in the film, but it was interesting to, to track that. But why is he pulling all these characters together? Here's a statement that the director made as to why these particular characters are being, you know, intertwined in the ways they are. And it's a direct quote, he says, I wanted to talk about this middle class young, well-educated kids who are having trouble finding their way in life. And it seems to me that, you know, these, film, these characters are different backgrounds, different, you know, races and ethnicities, et cetera. But you know what? They are all sharing space, if you will, in terms of, you know, age range, uh, demographically, where they're living. And this is a, you know, a suburban area just around, outside of Paris. And so the film does have that as a kind of unifying uh, factor, the fact that they are all more or less trying to find their way in life. And so the film does not have a lot of story per se, but it has a lot of what I call character study. And that's something you find in a lot of the French New Wave, don't you? It's essentially about those relationships and how people fall in and out of love. I wanted also to mention that Jacques Audouard also wrote the screenplay for this. So he's responsible for taking, you know, for example, the Amber Sweet story from the graphic novel and turning it into something that I think works much better visually, where you see them talking back and forth in various ways as people do, because it is a story about young people and, and what it's like to be in Paris and be young and fall in love and fall out of love and be betrayed and all of the things that go on. But he's also a very accomplished writer. And one thing I think he has a talent for is a feel for dialogue. Everything sounds exactly like people actually talk, and that gives it a real authenticity, which I thought was really made the movie st stand out from other movies. Another attribute of the French New Wave, you know, shooting on location with, you know, actors, but you, you see them as characters, right? You don't think about it as performance. You believe in the existence of these characters. And so when they talk, it seems like real conversations, doesn't it, Marie? It feels like these are people really talking to each other. It doesn't feel like scripted dialogue at all. Now, this did open at the Charles, which is where you saw it. But anybody who is interested in seeing this, I streamed it off of Amazon Prime, which I'm always happy when something is actually in the theaters and out, you know, streaming as well, because 
I miss that option being more available when we had it like everything was like that during lockdown. So anybody can watch this. You just go to Amazon Prime and you can stream it. And, you know, beware, don't have the windows open while you're watching this because there is a, a lot of nudity and a lot of sex. But really the shining moments are, are the characters talking. Any last words, Mike? <laughs> there are a lot of words in the film itself and, and and quite seriously i mean it's really engaging dialogue you believe in these characters and you really care about what they're saying back and forth so yeah absolutely you know for people who love french movies this is definitely one to consider absolutely which brings us to the end of our episode don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also on spotify and pandora under dragon digital radio and we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.